0: sermon text this morning is taken from the book of psalm chapter 148 praise the lord praise the lord from the heavens praise him in the heights praise him all his angels praise him all his hosts praise him sun and moon praise him all you shining stars praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth. Young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praised for all his saints for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord.
1: You know, as many of you, I'm sure, celebrated yesterday, knew yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. Um, I still remember it. I was eight years old. I mean, it was electric to think that two people uh, walked on the moon from Earth. It was, it was an incredible experience. What they were able to see and the things that they and that they I- experienced, it, it, it reminded me of something John Glenn, another astronaut. In fact, he was the first astronaut to orbit the Earth three times in the early 60s. And he spoke, and I'm sure that the two that walked, Aldrin and Neil uh, Armstrong, would have thought. He says, looking at the Earth from this vantage point, looking at this kind of creation, and to not believe in God, to me, is impossible. To see the earth laid out like that only strengthens my belief. Can you imagine to see creation from that angle? I mean, it almost seems to demand a certain response, even a certain kind of, of worship. It brings a kind of worship out of us. You know, as we've been going through these past six weeks, we've been looking at these various types of psalms. We want to learn how to speak to God regardless of the situations that we're in. And the Psalms give us words to speak to God. So we looked at a situation where maybe you were shy on wisdom. You were undecided on something. Well, we have the Psalms of wisdom. We can, we can go to God uh, seeking wisdom uh, or at times of trial and sorrow. And we looked at a psalm of lament. The psalms give us words that we don't have to hide from God. We can go to him in our struggle and sorrow. Or we looked at times that you may be facing uncertainty and fear. We looked at a psalm of of trust, of assurance. Here's how we approach God in that situation. Or perhaps a time when things are going well, uh, that God has moved mightily in your life and we can give we can give words of thanks. So we looked at a psalm of thanksgiving. And last week, we saw that even in those times when we have sinned against God greatly, we're just neck deep in sin. And we often think, well, you've got to get yourself cleaned up first and then go to God. We said, no, you go to God with your sin. And we looked at a psalm of confession or a penitential psalm. Here's how we approach God in our sin for forgiveness. This week we're speaking about a psalm of praise. It's, it's a psalm of praise, a hymn of praise. Now when I say praise, I don't mean kind of happy, clappy, bouncy, bumpy. I, I'm talking about the word praise means to ascribe, to regard God with honor and glory and majesty, uh, to do it with joy and to do it with reverence. It, it, it involves the mind. It's, it's rational thinking about God, and yet it doesn't. Divorce the affections. The heart is stimulated as you think about God, that they are combined together. And my desire for you today is simply that you would, you would love God more. You would have a greater awe of God. I can't, I can't corner you into this. Uh, I, I have found that fabricated affections for God do not last. Fabricated worship doesn't laugh, last. I, I, I think it's simply the opening of Scripture, The revealing of God's character to you, that, I believe, has a pull to it. To reveal God to you by opening Psalm 148, I believe, will give enough wisdom for you to say, yes, I I want to worship God. I want to revere him in greater measure. Um, This psalm that we're speaking, a psalm of praise is different than a psalm of thanksgiving. Psalms of thanksgiving usually are based upon some experience or some deliverance that God has given. A psalm of praise is more general in nature. It's speaking more to the character of God than perhaps a specific act. Uh, It it gives, by the way, a a greater depth and gravity to this is who God is. That's, That's the intent of a psalm of praise. Now, ours is 148. It's from the middle of the last five. The last five are all psalms of praise. They're called the endless psalms of praise. Uh, They just start with praise the Lord. Each one ends with praise the Lord. Ours is a creational psalm of praise. It looks back at God's creational and delivering power, uh, leading you to praise him for those things. Uh, The structure of a psalm of praise is always the same. The psalmist summons people to praise. And then he gives them reasons to praise. And you'll see that in our case here. Uh, But you notice it starts with praise the Lord. Now look at your text because you see the Lord as in all caps, L-O-R-D. When you see Lord in all caps, it's referring to the personal name of God, Yahweh. It's specific to him. So that's his personal name. Now you're going to see in your Bible other places where you'll see Lord, L-O-R-D, but in lowercase letters. And that would be speaking more to the relational aspect of God, that he is the Lord of creation. He's sovereign over all things. It's used in more of a general way. It can be used of kings who were lords. Or it might be used of, for example, Abraham was the Lord to Sarah. So, so Lord with lowercase letters, can mean God is sovereign, or it can be used in other general situations. But here you see that we're addressing Yahweh, the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah is what it means. Now, the way this psalm is structured is very simple. You see it's framed with praise the Lord at the beginning and praise the Lord at the end. Then you see in that second verse, and still verse 1, but part B, it says, Praise the Lord, all the heavens. And then it goes through the participants of praise. And then in 5 and 6, it gives the reasons why they ought to praise. And then you see in verse 7, it says, praise the Lord all the earth. And then it goes through the participants of the earth. And then, of course, it gives reasons. The way I'm going to look at this psalm is just look at it in those two fashions. We're going to look at the participants of worship. That's the first point. Who is being called to worship? And then we're going to look at the reasons for worship. There's rational reasons that lead us to worship. So, so think of it this way. Think of it that the psalmist is calling two choirs together. One choir is going to be worshiping God from the heavens, and one choir is going to be worshiping God from the earth. And together we're going to come before God and give him praise. So let's look at these participants. Look with me back at the beginning in verse 1. Because he talks about these heavenly choirs. He says, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts, praise him sun, moon, praise him. All you shining stars, praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. So what's he saying here? Well, I think he's starting with these angelic bodies, right? These angels. Angels have been created by God for his purposes to advance his agenda in this world. They've been created to praise God, to serve God, and they praise him by serving. So think of Isaiah chapter 6. You have those angels kind of just flying around God. They have six wings Two, they cover their eyes, because they cannot look upon the holiness of God. Two, they cover their feet in respect. With two, they fly, but they're praising God. Holy, holy, holy. That's what they've been created to do. You think about Psalm 103. He says, bless the Lord, O you angels who obey his word. So angels have been created by God. So this psalmist is saying, angels, come, give praise to God. But he moves from these angelic bodies to these celestial bodies, right? Son, moon and, and shining stars, these are the light bearers of the heavens, the sun in all of its glory. He's calling the sun, praise him, to the moon and to these shining stars. And then you see him go to the highest of heaven. and In Hebrew, that would be the heavens of heavens, probably the firmament. And the waters would be the water in the sky that brings down rain. In other words, what the psalmist is doing here is he's calling all of the heavenly bodies, everyone... And everything in the heavens give praise to God. Now it raises the question, how can they praise God? I mean, these celestial bodies, they can't speak, they can't give word. Well, they praise God by functioning as he intends them to function. They praise God by doing in glorious fashion what he's called them to do. So the sun shines, it provides warmth, it provides protection for us. The stars provide navigation the moon and the tides and how it works in our system, or or the rain comes down and nourishes the earth, that God has so created and designed creation to bring him glory by doing what they are called to do and doing it in perfection. This is what David says in Psalm 19. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In other words, what they're doing is creation, functioning as God designed, is calling attention to the creator. See the wisdom, see the glory, see the power. So Old Testament scholar wrote it this way. He says, just as a fine piece of furniture brings glory to the furniture maker, so the created order glorifies God by reflecting his power by walking out their function. The works of creation are eloquent witnesses to the glory of God. You you know this intuitively. You go out on a starlit night and you look into the sky. and Are you not impressed? Now, you know, if you go out, let's say outside the city, where there's too much light pollution to see the stars that are standing before you proclaiming God's glory, you go out into the fields, out into the country a bit. To the naked eye, you can see approximately 4,000, maybe a little bit more stars. And with a little bit of amplification with a set of binoculars, you can see at least visible within that power. You can see over 200,000 stars. You go further amplification amplification with uh, a telescope, and you can see over 5 million stars. When you think of the, the billions of stars and the light years away, light years being approximately six trillion miles, your mind just reels quickly to say it's too expansive. Our, our, our mind runs out of power to get there. And all of this creation is saying that God is beyond measure in terms of his power and, and his wisdom and his might. Uh, so, so the psalmist here is, is calling all of these heavenly bodies, And saying, give praise to the creator. But that's not the only choir. Of course, there's an earthly choir. Look with me in verse 7. He says, praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures and deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things, flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth young men and maidens together, old men and children. I mean, together he the psalmist again is summoning us. And, and instead of starting at the heights, he starts at the depths. I mean, the sea creatures, the blue whale, 100 feet long, 180 metric tons, just one of his many creation. Under the sea, but he moves from the sea to the sky and you have all the weather patterns, the wind and the hail and the fire, probably lightning. And then he moves from the sky to the earth, the mountains and the hills, the Himalayas to the hollers of West Virginia. And on those hills, you have fruit trees and cedars, all providing for God's people. And and then on those, you have beasts, you have wild animals, you have domesticated animals, livestock. At the lowest level, you got the creeping things, but then you have eagles soaring high above. What he's doing is he's speaking about the comprehensive nature that everything God has created in the heavens, everything that we have here, all is being summoned to give praise to God. But then he moves to his highest creation. Look what he says. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Do you notice he's covering everybody? Those with great authority, the most powerful men and women, you have been created to worship God. It, it doesn't matter the level of authority you have. It doesn't matter how powerful you are on this earth. You're still summoned to worship God. Uh, but, but it doesn't matter gender either, men and women. It doesn't matter age, old and young. It doesn't matter social position in life. All have been created to bring glory to God. All are being summoned, every Thing and every one in the heavens, everything and every one on the earth are all being called. And yet and yet, for many, we don't praise Him. We, we don't fulfill this call. We struggle with praising God. Some people, I think, are, are blind to it, ignorant to it. We'll talk about those in a minute. But for the others, you may be here and you, you want to praise God more. You, you just don't feel it, really. And, and I do want to remind you uh, that praising God is, is not that, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, not so happy clappy. You know, our temperaments do affect how we experience and how we offer praise to God. Some of us are much more exuberant. Some of us are, some of us are, are much more inhibited. Some of you are more cerebral. You, you know, the, the epistles may appeal to you more than, than a psalm of praise. Some of you are more in in difficult situations and you find it harder to praise. I understand that. And and I think the psalmist does too because, you know, this psalm of praise is one of the many languages we speak before God. We do have psalms of lament when we're struggling. We do have psalms of wisdom when we need to think more. So, So don't write yourself off because you don't seem exuberant as the others. Remember, praising God is considering him, of ascribing to him glory and honor and worth. So that's what he does. And you see in this psalm, it's very clear. He summons a heavenly choir and he summons an earthly choir. Really, he summons everything and everyone he has made. But that begs the question, why? Why ought we to give worship to this God? And then he begins to furnish us the reasons. He is meeting the needs of your rational mind with good reasons. Look at the first reason with me. It's his power and precision. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. In 5 and 6 he says, For he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, it shall not pass away. So what the psalmist is saying is, yes, all things... And everyone will praise God because he has created you. From angels to asteroids, he has created you. And he has created you by his word. He has spoken, he has given existence to all things in the heavens and to all things on the earth. It it didn't take him a million years to do it. He wasn't forming it and fashioning it and test driving it and then getting it to work right, as we may. He spoke, he said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be day, and there was day. Let there be night, and there was night. A word. This is what we call it. This is the doctrine of ex nihilo, creating out of nothing by the sheer power of his word. He gives existence as he speaks. And all of our existence is because he spoke it into being. But he doesn't just create, he, he establishes, he sustains, he preserves. Look in there in verse 6 that he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, shall not pass away. Probably thinking here along the order that he has established in natural law. That like a jeweler sets a ring, as a jeweler sets a diamond on the ring, so God has set the earth on its axis and the sun in its place. God has established how this world will work. He causes all things to function. He gives all things its marching orders. You see this all around you. Why do they have the masters at the same time every year? They know the azaleas are going to bloom every year at that same time. Why do the cicadas come out every 17 years? Do they just want to come out then? God has established it. There is a precision to his order. Why do the whales migrate thousands of miles to the same spot to breed every year of the migratory patterns of the birds? Why? Well, God's created it that way. But just think for a minute if it didn't work that way. If tomorrow the law of gravity stopped, where would we be? Would not be standing here. The the, the laws and the precision and the power, they're all engendering you to say, you are great. You are unbelievable. Who could have thought these things? And let alone think them. who could have done them. See, this kind of God, how can you trust a God that isn't like this? Now, this kind of God can be trusted. He can be counted on. He can be run to. When you have your greatest struggles before you, who else would you go to? Would you run to other created beings like yourself that are limited in knowledge and power like you? No. No, we'd go to him. We can trust him. We know that he has what we need at every step along the way. So th- this is a reason why we praise him. He is His precision and his power We are in the theater of his making. We can just look around and know that we can worship him. But this kind of creator does humble us. Because if this is true, if he does all these things by his word, then what it means is you and I, we are totally dependent. We are in fact contingent upon him. Our very existence is contingent upon him. He gave us life. I didn't determine where I'd be born, how I'd be born, with whom I'd be born. I I determined nothing of that. That was all contingent upon his purposes and plans. Your existence, not just your existence, the forming of it, the sustaining of it is rooted in his care. He preserves. If he fails to address you with life in 10 minutes, you will not live. He preserves you by giving the success that you may have in the business office tomorrow or, or the conversations you have or the things that you accomplish or the breath that you have tomorrow morning. It will be because he has given it to you. If he doesn't give it to you, you will not live. He is sustaining you. It says in Hebrews 1.3 that he upholds the whole universe right now by his word. This is where we believe. This is a statement of faith. Do I believe it? Because it will humble you. It will lead you to worship only him. But not just are we dependent, we're also stewards. We quickly think we own things. But he has created all things. He brought all things into. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did you work? Did you participate? Yes, absolutely. With his power and with his gifts and with his opportunities. If he were to take all... Now, obviously, as we relate to one another, the scriptures even speak about a private property, but in relationship to God, he owns everything in absolute terms. If he were to take it from you tomorrow, he would not be wrong to do that. It is his. We are simply stewards. So, of course, we run to him with worship as creator. But not just are we stewards. We're not autonomous. We're not self-determining. We're not self-actualizing. We are not autonomous we are not self determining we are not self actualizing we are Looking to Him to discern, what is our purpose? What is our plan? Listen, if God didn't create all things, yeah, then determine your own purpose. It wouldn't have any meaning, by the way. We'd be on a rock hurling through space with no purpose or plan. But if He has created all things by His Word, then He is the one that determines and sets for us our purpose and our plan and gives us all that we need to accomplish those things. Could be driving to to work tomorrow and you're thinking about, well, we'll drive to work. You can be saying to yourself, I am for your glory. I mean, I want to glorify you with my work. I want to serve those around me. I want to do it with holiness and I want to do it integrity. That's how we work to the glory of God, do all things to the glory of God. Now, if you're hearing this from me and you find pleasure in it, and you think, so give yourself a test. You know, if, if you hear this, that he's sovereign, he's creator, he's preserving all things, he's ruling over, and you find that good and pleasurable and helpful, then thank God for the grace you have. Because I know that there are many that may hear this, and, and some may think your back kind of bows up a little bit. It, it makes us feel kind of small, really insignificant i would just ask you if you feel that way i'd respectfully ask well then how do you explain your existence why are you the way you are and where you are how did you get here how do you sustain yourself how long can you sustain yourself what is your purpose what is your meaning why do you think transcendently why do you love why do you hate you have to give some there aren't a lot of options here either he has created all things by his word for his glory or it's just there by accident. And you know, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote in his uh, his collection of essays, and uh, together put in um, a book called God in the Dock, he wrote these words. He said, if the solar system was brought about by an accident collision, then the appearance of organic life on this planet was also an accident, and the whole evolution of man was an accident too. If so, then all of our present thoughts are mere accidents, the accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms. And and this holds for the thoughts of the materialists and the astronomers as well as anyone else's. Uh, But if their thoughts, that is the materialist and the astronomer, if they're merely accidental byproducts, why should we believe them to be true? I, I, I see no reason for believing that one accident should be able to give me a correct account of all other accidents. It's like expecting that the accidental shape taken by the splash when you upset a milk jug should give you a correct account of how a jug was made and why it was upset. It's incredible. Think about it. That's what we're left with. So the reason that we praise God is that he is powerful, he is uh, preserving, he is precise, he's good, he's wise in all this creation. At a minimum, we just stand back and in awe of such creative wonder. But there's another reason he gives us. In, In verse 13, his majesty. Look what he says there. Let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above heaven and earth. Now, the name of the Lord is often a reference for the character of the Lord. So it speaks to his whole person. So he's saying here, let let them praise the character of God for his name. His character is alone. It's, theologians used to say he is wholly other. He, he's not like us. He's not, uh, We're derivative from him. He's not like us in any way. We may bear his image, but he's totally different. His majesty is above the heavens and the earth. There are no close seconds to God. There's no one whose majesty and holiness and beauty are even comparable to him. He is unique in all ways. And so what the psalmist is saying is, this is why you worship him. This is why all of heaven and earth worships him, because nobody's like him, nobody's even close to him. Now the threat to humans, the threat to us, is always to be tempted to worship the creation rather than the creator. And incidentally, you know, Moses warns the people of God this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let me read this passage to you, and I want you to listen for the parallels between what I'm reading and the psalm that was read, 148. He says, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of a winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. He knows... Our default is to go after the created and not the creator. He knows we have a tendency. It's always been that way. People have worshiped angels. I mean, Paul warns about that in Colossians 2. <clears throat> They've long thought the stars have influence over the directions of your life. I mean, I personally, when I was a kid, I mean, I'm a Pisces myself. I, I would always look to the horoscope, what the horoscope's saying. The horoscope says on the day of your birth that the stars were lined up in a certain way, and that's going to determine the path And the direction of your life. And people look to that. They long for that. They go to that. What the psalmist is saying is, no. His majesty is above the heavens and the earth. Why do we pursue those things? Listen, here's the danger. The things, and you notice in the text, he says, what you serve and bow down to. They're together, the synonymous. The things that we serve, the things that we love, the things that take up our imagination, all those things that we really, really want or that we really, really fear, those become like the lures on the end of a fishing line that just distract the fish into danger. What do you really want? What do you really think you need? Because when it's not God, we're moving into dangerous waters. I've quoted this in the past, but... Ralph Waldo Emerson says, that which dominates our imagination and our thought will determine our life and character. It behooves us, not writing as a Christian here, but just writing, declaring truth. It behooves us to be careful what we are worshiping, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. He's stating a truth here that the Bible has long said before that, that what you love, what you serve, what you bow down to will have a transforming effect on you. It's not simply idol worship, but it actually has a conforming power. You see the little kid who loves the basketball star. He wears his shoes, wears his jersey, has the same jump shot that he does. There's a conforming power. And so it behooves us to know, what are we loving? Is it the relationship you need, or is it the new government that you need? Is it the new job? Is it the new home? Is it the change of What is it that you long for? Because you must be careful. We could be pursuing that which is in heaven and earth when he stands above all those things. There's a great danger there for us. And the psalmist is is really implicitly chiding and warning us about that. We worship him because he's above. His holiness and beauty is above all that. But then he gives us a a third reason. Look with me in verse 14. It's not just his power and it's not just his majesty, but it's his mercy. Where do I draw that from? Look with me at 14. He says, he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. So his, the psalmist is saying, listen, I want you to praise God because he has raised up a horn. Now, what's a horn? Horn's not something. It is something you toot around birthday parties. But the horn in scripture is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for power and strength. So I think this is Psalm 72, where God breaks the horns of his enemies. He crushes their power as he leads Israel out of Babylon back to Israel. Uh, David uses the same expression in Psalm 18. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield And the horn of my salvation. So David is saying, God, I see you as the horn of my salvation. You are my strength. You are going to deliver me. And you know, when you look through the history of Israel, God was the horn of salvation. He delivered them. Time and time again, he rescued them. It was his power and it was his might so that they might be drawn near to him. But they weren't so near as he desires us to be. So it doesn't surprise us when you go to the New Testament, you find the same expression, horn of salvation, used. But it's interesting where it's used. It's used in Luke chapter 1. So Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he says this. He he finds out his wife Elizabeth, long barren, now with child, is going to have a boy. The boy is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And he breaks off into this great praise to God. And he says this. In chapter one, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. What he's saying is, David said the horn was God, but now Zechariah is saying, no, there's a horn in the house of Israel. Who is that horn? Well, the horn must be Jesus Christ, because John's the forerunner of this Messiah, Remember now, David was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he was promised that he would have a son, the son would be a king, he would be a deliverer, he would be leading a kingdom forever. Jesus comes and announces that he has brought a kingdom to repent and believe the gospel. That Jesus has brought about a salvation, deliverance from us, for us. A a salvation for us that is far greater than the exodus from Egypt and the exodus from Babylon. He's brought us An exodus from sin through himself, the horn of salvation. Notice what it says, to have a people near him. That Jesus Christ has brought us near to God through him coming, dying for our sins, taking upon himself all of our guilt and our shame that we might be redeemed from the curse, delivered from sin, and reconciled to God that we might be near him. This is no small issue. Consider the idea of nearness with me for just a minute. You have the nearness. You have Adam and Eve. They're very near God. They walked with him in the cool of the day. They were together with God. When they rebelled against God, when they did not want to worship him as creator and ruler and sustainer and lover of their souls, they were removed from the garden. They were not near him anymore. And, and then, of course, you, you, people were pushed. Where did they go? Into the wilderness. or what the Bible calls exile. They weren't near God anymore. Moses tried to approach God. Take off your shoes. You're standing on the holy ground. You can't get near me. The people around the mountain when God was on it, don't let them get near me or they'll die. The tabernacle, the temple, nobody could get near God. High priest once a year, but he had the blood of a perfect sacrifice. But nobody could get near him. What is God going to do? How's God going to save his salvation? How can he raise up a horn? Well, he sends a son who comes near us with flesh like us, and yet perfect in every way, who then dies for our sin. He came to seek and save the lost and to be raised. Why? So that we can be near God. But yet we're still in exile. But he has given us the spirit that we know with our spirit that we're children of God by the power of his spirit. And all of this is moving toward the day that we'll be near him again. In Revelation 21, we will again dwell with God. Do you see the beautiful arc of Scripture? How we were near Him, sin moved us out, one came near to us to save us, to bring us back near to God. This is why we worship Him. We'll never fatigue of worshiping This God who would be so kind to give us this glorious Son, that's why we worship Him. We we love Him. Uh, So we want to practice the praising of God, we want to participate in. Let me, let me give you some, some ideas. The reason that we want to praise God, even when we're not in the mood, so to speak, so to say, is, is that it does deepen our joy. When we think about these things and we consider them and when we listen to the preaching of the gospel, our joy is deepened. You know how it is. You get something exciting in your life and what do you want to do with it? Just lock it down under. No, you you want to share it to those who are closest to you. It's more fun to share it. To not be able to share a beautiful thing, it almost seems unsatisfying. When we speak about the glory of God in this way, our joy and our reverence is deepened. It's bettered. John Piper writes this, About that idea, he says, here's the end of the matter. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not the act of a needy ego, but it's an act of infinite giving. The reason God seeks our praise is not because he will not fully be God until he gets it, but that we won't be fully happy until we give it. Giving praise to God increases our joy in God. So use the psalm as a template. For yourself, leading yourself into deeper worship. Or use it with other people. Bring them to the truths of this psalm and help them enjoy God in greater measure. So we want to we look at these psalms of praise that deepens our worship, but we want to do it together. Utilizing this psalm, coming together, reminds us that we're redeemed. Listen, many of us can live our Christian lives very individualistically. Or we can do it in a very small group of friends that we kind of move through life with. But this is calling for a broader a broader gathering together of the assembly of the righteous that we can together be praising God, to be thinking about the gospel, uh, to be thinking about the greatness of God. We can be encouraging one another outside of those more close-knit relationships that you may have. We, we need to come together each week to hear the gospel, why? Because our hearts are such, it's not like arithmetic, when you teach a child addition, they usually remember it till the end, like riding a bike, you never have to learn again. Something different with the gospel, because of the nature of our hearts, we always are prone to wander away. We need to be reminded. Or trials come into your life. Or or lovely things that are distracting come into your life. And so God knows that that the nature of our heart needs constant reminding of these glories together that we might worship him. And to not slide away from what is beautiful and true. But we also need these psalms of praise to help fight within us our own fear of man. Most of us here are scared of other people, or we want to be loved by other people, or we're nervous about what they think about us, or we're concerned about what they say about us. This psalm gives us freedom. They're just no more created than you. They need breath coming from God tomorrow morning just like you do. I mean, this order of creation here reminds us that wait, we may be in different positions of authority, intelligence, social position. That may be all well and true, but it's only temporary. It's only temporary. We still, each one of us here in this room, we're still contingent. In two minutes, we'll be contingent upon God to give us life. That levels the playing field and it undermines the fear of man or overvaluing of men or women. And, and, and it, it just kind of levels it and gives us a certain freedom and liberty. But, but also, the psalm of praise does one other thing. It removes the fear of the world. You know, sometimes when you read the paper, it can be an anxiety-causing event. I, I mean, you think about the political situation that we live in now. It's like theater, no doubt. Uh, you look at the constant rise of tensions in the Middle East. The global economy, it seems like it's so precarious, they sink one boat in the Strait of Hormuz, and what's going to happen? Gas prices go up, market goes down, what's going to happen to our future? Well, this just says, you know what? God has set this world in motion with a direction. He's going to preserve it in the manner that he sees fit, and he's going to bring it to an end that will be most glorious for him and most happy for us. That will be the rule, that will be the case. He is preserving it now. We don't need to be a people of fear. We are a people that are happy. We think. We're rational thinkers. And we rest the fact that he preserves. He has established things, and they will be established forever. So these psalms of praise are very hopeful for us. Think about it. We have these two choirs. The the psalmist summons all of heaven and all of earth. Give praise to God. He gives us reasons why. Why? Because of his power. You see it all around you. You live in the theater of his glory. You see it in his majesty. He is unique. There is nothing that you're going to set your mind to that will be of greater value than him and then his mercy. We have much to be thankful for. Uh, Let's just take a few minutes and consider these things. It, It might be a point of of repenting that you have lined up all these lovely created things above him. Give a word to God on that or thank him for who he is or how he has saved you. But let's speak with him in the words of the psalm for a moment and then I'll pray for us.